everybody. Welcome back to the Grape Escape podcast. It's your trusty host, Molly, with you today. And we're doing something a little bit different. Um, I wanted to start focusing on different regions around the world that are making good quality wine. And uh, I wanted to invite a guest on from, you know, various different regions to talk about what they know about the place that they are working in. So this is our first segment in that sort of stream today. And I'm joined by my dear friend, Dan. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Hi, Molly. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I, I, we've been trying to do this for a while, so I'm glad we're finally getting to do it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Um, so, Dan, which wine region in the world do you work in? I'm currently located in the Cowichan Valley, um, which is, uh, I guess, a sub-region of Vancouver Island, or the Wine Islands, which includes Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands. And that's part of British Columbia, in case you're listening from uh, abroad. British Columbia, which is part of Canada, I guess we right, probably thank you. Yeah, yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, I forget, how, how big do I have to zoom out? Right. Well, we do have listeners from some pretty cool places around the world, so yeah. Yeah. Um, so Dan, if you wanted to tell us a little bit about your region, what would you want people to know? Yeah, so this area has the warmest average temperatures in Canada. Hmm. Um, so it has a very long growing season relative to some of the more continental places, but uh, sort of consistent mean temperature. So it doesn't get too hot or too cold in the winter. So different from the Okanagan Valley or the Niagara Peninsula, which are the two more famous regions. Um and so we have a little less growing degree days than other regions. And what else can I say about it? It's a beautiful area situated in between sort of some of the mountains on the very west coast, uh, which protects us a little bit from the rain, a little bit in the rain shadow. So we're not getting hit with the heavy coastal rains that uh, that hit places like Tofino and, and the west coast. Um, and to the east of us, we have the Strait of Georgia. So that's the, the sort of strait in between us and Vancouver. And that sort of helps to moderate the temperature as well. And so it gives us kind of a, a maritime but almost Mediterranean climate. Cool. So you talked a little bit about your positioning offshore and then how that affects the climate. And then how does the mm -hmm. climate um, affect what sort of varietals you grow in your region. Right. So um, there's a pretty wide range of varieties that people are growing in the region, but all of them tend to be early ripening varieties. Um, one of the other characteristics of our region is uh, that we have a very wet winter and those rains start to hit as early as October. And so if you don't have everything picked by the end of October or mid to late October, then you're you're getting into risky territory. So you need early ripening varieties. So Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris um, work well, as well as some hybrids that have been uh, developed for the island, which I can get into a little bit more detail about those too. Um, and uh, some of the classic sort of hybrids like Marshall Foch as well, and and those sort of varieties. 
Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about the the hybrids that you work with. They were so the, there's a group of hybrids um, called the Blattner hybrids, named after the grape breeder. Um, his name is Valentin Blattner, and uh, he's from Switzerland. Um, so I'm not sure um, actually if if he really bred these varieties specifically with Vancouver in mind, but he's worked with some local. Uh, uh, nurseries and grape growers here um, to sort of trial them here and um, so far there's been some positive response um, from the grape growing community and the winemaking community uh, and um, uh, some whites and some reds and they're sort of early ripening varieties but uh, they don't have those foxy characteristics like some of the really old um, hybrids do. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question, because a lot of the hybrids that I've seen where I am in in New York, um, and also, you know, sort of brought over into Ontario, where we're both, we both have experience working, um, a lot of them have that sort of weird foxy character, which is the nature of the fact that they are crossbred between Native American varieties and European varieties. So which... Which hybrid varietals are the best for winemaking out there, have the least of that foxy character? Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, I, I'm still not like a totally sold on, on these varieties, although some do have some more promising characteristics than others. Um, there's one called Savignat, which I think is one of the more promising varieties. There's a bit of a dispute on exactly what to call it out here. Some people call it Epicure, which was its original name, but we're calling it Savignat. We actually do a, a single varietally labeled um, Savignat, and we ferment it in barrel, kind of like a Chardonnay or a Viognier. So and it's a white variety. White variety, yes. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, it has, it has a similar sort of characteristic to, I, I would liken it a little bit more to Viognier, sort of a medium bodied and kind of some more tropical notes, um, but can handle some oak treatment as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's quite interesting. And then there's some, there's some hybrids in the Blattner family too that are, they're challenging. Um, there's some red varieties that have, you know, lots of pyrazines those green characteristics um which are quite challenging to deal with uh and then there there's a couple white varieties that have some some kind of just sort of very unique flavors and um sometimes those are a little little challenging whether or not uh, the consumer will will like those or perhaps the biggest challenge is just the consumer recognition. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I answered your question, did I? <laughs> well, yeah, you gave me a good example of a, of a hybrid that you think works well out there. So that's that's good. So when it comes to consumer acceptance, um, are you seeing people sort of start to accept these hybrid varieties or are people more likely to look to other regions to, to get the names that they're familiar with? Yeah, that's that's been really interesting uh, coming out here because, as you know, um, in Ontario, there's still a, a real um, uh, what's the word uh, a, a stigma around hybrids, and the word hybrid is sort of a bad word. Um, I don't think there's as much of a stigma here on Vancouver Island, especially in the the local area in Cowichan Valley. 
And so our local consumers seem to have jumped right on board with these varieties, these new varieties. I think they find it interesting and exciting. Whereas uh, when we try to sort of, when we try to sell into more of the urban regions like Victoria and Vancouver, we have a little bit harder time pushing the varieties. So although they sell well on a small local scale, um, we're not too sure yet what their um, capacity is, I guess, or distribution range could be really. Okay, so building on that, what kind of traditional European varieties, I know you mentioned a couple, but uh, which ones do you think do the best? Um, on the island, and and how do they compare um, stylistically to other regions around the world? Good question. Um, so Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris are are two of the more widely planted vinifera varieties, and then there's some people dabbling in Chardonnay, and uh, there's some Auxerrois, there's uh, Gewürztraminer trying to think if there's any other big ones but uh, uh, I think that's those are the main varieties we we only do uh, Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris and because of the versatility of those grape varieties we do them in many styles so we do them as sparkling wine and then we'll do rosé out of Pinot Noir as well and then as long as um, the grapes we can uh, ripen if in a good year, we'll do table red and table white, uh, Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris. And the, the style is still very cool climate, sort of uh, more delicate flavors. The style we do the Pinot Gris in uh, is unoaked, um, but we give it a lot of uh, lees treatment and almost all of our wines we put through malolactic fermentation, so it'll give it a bit more body and breadth. Something you said made me think about how this is the second time I've had another Canadian on the podcast. Um, But I think as Canadians, we often hear about how, especially from people in warmer parts of the world, um, more traditional winemaking areas, um, we often hear the argument that like, why, why even bother making wine in Canada? It's so cold, (laughs) you know, um, your, your red suck. Which is true in all parts yeah. of the, all parts of Canada, but um, why even bother and why try to battle with the elements? So, like, what do you think the argument is to like still try to make wine in challenging areas like the island or you know other cooler parts of of Canada or the world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, sometimes I've struggled with that uh, thought, especially <laughs> you know living in Ontario when we had back to back winters that just sort of devastated the the region. Um, but uh, I think for here, for one, uh, you know, our, our winters are milder. So that's sort of one less challenge we have to deal with that other um, fringe areas, if I can call them fringe, uh, have to deal with. We don't, we don't have the winter injury or winter kill scenario and relatively low risk for spring frost although it's still a risk i think one argument that i would make is that cool climate is trending right now and people are really looking for wines with fresh acidity and um, more delicacy lower alcohol those styles of wines are are popular and in demand 
and mm -hmm. we can naturally make those wines i guess uh with that fresh acidity and sometimes our acidity is um still too high but uh, that's the challenge we we deal with yeah so that's that's sort of what i would say to that is it's it's in other traditional growing regions uh particularly with climate change happening they're having to adjust to and adapt to those challenges of they're overripe, too much sugar accumulation, which leads to higher alcohols. Um, they're having to, you know, acidify to a greater degree and that sort of thing. And so um, there's there's pros and cons to both places, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I don't think that having an overripe fruit bomb is, is interesting at all. And yeah. um Last episode, I was speaking to Tobias, who who was kind of making the same argument about um, making wine in England, and particularly sparkling wine, and how you want that acidity to bring some brightness to a to a sparkling wine. So, um, speaking of sparkling wine, there you've mentioned that there are sparkling wines coming out of uh, the island. Is that is that something you think that the island should be focusing on? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think uh, sparkling wine is a great focus. I think there's uh, lots of people who are now coming on board with that. There's uh, a few different styles, which is exciting. Um, there's a traditional method, of course, like the champagne method. And we are now one of two wineries in BC uh, doing Charmat method or the Prosecco style method. Traditional method is happening and it's, it's, a, it's a much more romantic way in some ways to make sparkling wine and you know I think probably produces uh, the best style of sparkling wines in the world so I, I certainly think there's room for that. Um, we're on about the same latitude as champagne which is interesting, um, mm. you know, although latitude doesn't really account for all the other climatic factors. Um, there's definitely a capability for great sparkling. Cool. That's awesome. And is sparkling wine like one of the best sellers to, to the customers in your area? Yeah, especially I mentioned the Charmat method. Sparkling wine that we're producing, uh, it's, it sells out incredibly fast for um, us. And um, I think in general, sparkling wines on the island uh, sell very well. We, we have a tough time keeping up with demand. So that's a great problem to have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so Dan, you and I have, well, we've been friends for a while now, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and we've had this conversation before and, um, and it ties in nicely because we've been talking a lot about how you're a new wine region and how customers are still figuring out, um, you know, what they like and, and getting used to the style that your region produces. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about transparency in the wine industry when it comes to um, what we tell customers when they're buying a bottle of wine. Um, about our production methods, about finding agents, things like Fun. that. So, yeah, so, the good stuff. Yeah, the good. <laughs> so, where do you stand on that? What do you? <laughs> um, just to start, I, I'm always evolving a bit on this subject, and um, same. Yeah. And I, uh, I think I, I have evolved now, having worked at one producer um, full time and understanding a bit more of like just understanding what it's like to work for a winery full time and not just be kind of a traveling winemaker and how, you know, I, I'm reminded of this, uh, 
sort of Louis C.K. line where he he talks about how if someone's willing to give you money to live your life, then you should probably just do what they're asking you to. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe that's a bit, uh, uh, maybe that doesn't make sense to a lot of the listeners, but maybe we'll get into that kind of how how that relates to this topic. (laughs) Um, But, uh, and then the other thing that I think is really important is kind of working backwards from what kind of styles of wine you want to make and what's your time frame like, because I think you can do a lot of things with time, but if you want to create a wine that's ready to market within sort of eight to 10 months or so post harvest sometimes you've you've got to do uh, a bit more intervention finding and filtering to uh to get it bottle ready yeah absolutely i'm finding that a lot at my winery we're fairly hands off and we don't do any fining if we don't have to our cold stabilization usually just means put a tank outside when it's cold out <laughs> nice that's, um, that's nice yeah but that's because we're not under a huge amount of pressure to get our wines into bottle um and typically i've always felt that wines made in that sort of laid back style are generally better quality and that's kind of always been my assumption but Definitely, if you're working at a winery where there's a huge demand for your product and, and you want to keep your job, you have to be able to get your, your bottles onto the market. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, Molly. I, I, my goal is always, in my personal winemaking philosophy, is to uh, not find and not have to filter, um, basically do as little as possible to the wine. I think m- uh, most winemakers would like to make wines in that style, but uh Yeah, I sort of see it as well. Uh, I can have that personal philosophy, but I can also kind of play the other role of getting a wine to market a bit faster. Or um, sometimes I see the advantages in findings too. I mean, if it does sort of improve the the quality or even if that's subjective of of the wine, um, uh, then I think there can be advantages I don't think these things are necessarily evil, but I like how you tied this topic to transparency. And I do really believe that uh, we should be more transparent. And um, I think consumers are getting more and more interested in general, where their food comes from, which translates to where their wine comes from, how it's grown, how it's made. Um, and I think more transparency is only a good thing in the long run, because I think uh, it will get more and more people interested and understand why we do these things. Yeah, I I know what you're saying, um, but I kind of disagree, and here's why. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, and this is coming from me a year and a half into working in a wine region where people don't care about wine mm-hmm. as much, let's say. Right. Uh, People are dumb, Dan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Customers are stupid. And I think the point where we started putting, you know, contained sulfites on the label created more confusion than anything. And uh, of course, I think it's important for people to be educated about what happens to their wine. And of course, I enjoy educating people and saying, hey, this is why we need to put sulfites into the wine. But they don't 
get it. <laughs> we have biochemistry degrees, you know? Right. And most other people don't. So I also think when you say, like, contains milk or egg products, it, well, the wine doesn't actually contain that. You know, it was racked off of that if it was used as a defining agent. I percent agree, yeah. Yeah, so anyways, the counter-argument is people are dumb. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the labels are probably too small to include every single detail anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's perhaps not something that needs to be put directly on the label, but uh, a link to the website or more information on the website or or when you're telling your stories at the, at the winery cellar door, um, being honest and transparent and not trying to cover up um, thing. Like, I don't think yeah. in general, I, I, I don't think you should be doing anything to your wine that you're embarrassed or to tell someone um, yeah. if it's in person or something like that. Maybe you don't have to advertise it, but. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I do. It's hard yeah. to figure out where to, to draw the line, I guess. Right. And, and that's what it comes down to. It's always kind of, a line because people get really deep into this subject. I think, you know, that we start arguing over a tiny minutia. Well, is it manipulation to uh, de-leaf the fruiting zone, you know, or something like mm-hmm. that? And it's like, of course, mm-hmm. you're going to be making decisions and you're going to be manipulating always, you know, like, is it manipulation to de-stem the fruit, you know, things like that. And so it does come down to where is the line for each individual and where is the line for you as a winemaker. Absolutely. And I, and I completely agree with your point that the information should be available to those who are interested, because I do think it helps people get more invested in the process and, and then therefore more willing to pay for the wines that you're making um, and support your industry. So I, I completely agree that, you know, if people are interested in educating themselves and figuring out why you use certain finding agents or do certain things to the wine, that you should provide that information and never be embarrassed about what you're doing at your winery. But yeah, yeah when it comes to putting things on labels, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I love, um, I like uh, Bonnie Dune, how they're paving the way for this and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think, yeah, it, it'll, it'll be a while before it's uh, a universally accepted thing. One thought, too, is sort of who, who is your market and who are, your, your, who are you selling your wine to? And mm-hmm. you're right, a lot of people don't care. And maybe for the people who don't care, it's, it's better if they don't know. Um, I've been surprised recently asking even some people who work in the wine industry, whether they would uh, want to know if I, say, blended in 5% of a a different variety into a wine that's labeled as a single varietal. And I was shocked to know that uh, they would rather not know Mm -hmm. than sort of muddy those waters. Yeah. No, that and, is that is interesting. If if these people who work in the industry, especially, because yeah. um, it drives me crazy when I find out that a bottle of Pinot Noir that looks surprisingly dark, clearly, you know, when yeah. somebody finally admits, yeah, we added like the legal five to ten percent of you know Merlot. Yeah. 
It's like, well, yeah. Why? No. That's why everybody <laughs> wants my Pinot to be darker, and you're just screwing with the whole industry. But anyways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's sort of like you know, I've I've had. It's nice if if people are interested and want to know. But you're right. I think a lot of people don't really care. It's it's surprising in some ways. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well. Maybe we should make it our mission to to get more people to care. I think that's the goal. I think ultimately, if we can raise interest, more and more interest in in how wines are made, and people get more interested in that story, you know, then they have more appreciation in general for wine, and you can sell wines at a higher price point. Um, I think when I've worked in, like, I worked in Oregon, uh, for example, which is a little bit more established, mm-hmm. and their wines are quite expensive. And so being kind of in that culture for a little while, uh, I think sort of showed me a different side to the industry where people are like almost, you know, overly interested in how your wines are made and they want to know every single detail and they, and maybe they should if they're paying that price point, you know, and they, they want wines that are not manipulated and, um, and that sort of thing. So. No, yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting to see differences. I've talked about this many times, but Niagara, New York versus Niagara, Ontario. It's a right. whole world of difference. And yeah, yeah, it's it's always interesting to, to, ha- to work with a market that is really passionate about your product versus a market that's looking to get drunk off your product. So... Yeah. Right. Yeah. When you're selling in the sort of $20 and under range or, you know, 20 to 30 or 30 plus, you know, I think it changes a lot uh, to what consumers care about and what they're looking for, what they're interested in. Yeah. So, Dan, I just had one more question for you um, as we kind of wrap up talking about this um, up and coming region. What do you think the biggest challenge to your region is? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's still a very young region. Um, you know, there's been a couple growers who have been growing since sort of the 80s or maybe even some plantings since the 70s, but really the majority uh, have sort of come on board since the 90s. Uh, so we, there's just not a lot of vineyards planted yet. So if wineries are looking to purchase grapes, the grapes are scarce. Um, there's not a lot of fruit on the market. So... Um, you know, a lot of people have planted vineyards as a retirement project or they're sort of weekend warrior growers. So they're not uh, staying on top of their vineyards as much as someone who's kind of gone into the business of grape growing as their career, like uh, in other more established regions. Right. And so that's maybe why they're more focused on the hybrids and stuff, because they're a little bit easier to grow. Yeah, a lot of people have, have specifically kind of chosen hybrids um, because they, you know there's uh, less less work involved, and to some extent, you know, it's a great thing because you can get away with less sprays, and no one likes to spray things. The consumer will decide in the end if the wines are as good of quality. Um, that kind of leads me into something else that we like to do on this podcast called the wine or wine segment. There's lots of good wines coming out of Cowichan Valley and Vancouver Island, although they're probably hard to get your hands on uh, if you're outside of BC or even if you're outside of Vancouver Island, um, because a lot of them are really sold locally. Um, 
I'd like to recommend Answorth Vineyard's 2014 Pinot Noir. Uh, it's really excellent. Uh, I think there's still a little bit being sold at the winery. 2010 Avril Creek Pinot Noir was excellent as well. Let's see, other wines coming out of the, the wine region here. Um, I recently had a bottle from uh, Cherry Point. It was their 2010 traditional method sparkling wine, and that was incredible as well. It's got some bottle age on it now, so I don't know how much is available still. You know, there's some some really exciting smaller wineries uh, that have just recently come into the valley. Uh, Emmendare uh, Vineyards is uh, one winery I'd recommend just checking checking out um, for your listeners. Well, that's awesome. That's lots of great recommendations for people to look into. And if we can't find it outside of BC, then it's an excuse to come visit. Yeah, come visit. Come check out the valley. I mean, it's a beautiful spot. The island's really fun. It's um, it, you know, so laid back and relaxed. Uh, you have to take a ferry here, so it immediately kind of puts you kind of on vacation mode and, and uh, you know, kind of that island time phenomenon. Why aren't you speaking like a Jamaican? What's happening? <laughs> island time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's great, and uh, you know, there's mountains, and there's the ocean, and you know, there is surf on the the west coast if if you're into that. So it's a beautiful spot. I feel really lucky to have landed here. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing your your information about it with us, and uh, hopefully, we'll be able to send some visitors your way, and hopefully, I'll be able to get out there soon too. You're always welcome. Uh, All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really am glad we got to make this happen, and hopefully you can be a recurring guest because you were really great. It was my pleasure, Molly. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Shout out to Thanks, Richard. Hey there. If you've listened this far in the podcast, you must really enjoy it. Please feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You can find us at the Grape Escape Podcast. You can email us any questions you have to the Grape Escape Podcast at gmail.com. Listen to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a comment or rating. Cheers!